I wonder how you have dealt with the news of the past week. As the days have gone by, things seem to have got worse and worse. This time last week, (coughs) Russia's invasion of Ukraine had already begun. War was on our doorstep in Europe. Pictures were coming back of immense suffering. We knew things were bad. But just think of some of the headlines that have come since then. At the beginning of the week, Putin announced that he had put his nuclear forces on high alert. Although analysts were quick to state that practically nothing had changed, the rhetoric was dangerous and we could sense the tension escalating. Then we had the news story of the artillery shells that hit the nuclear power plant. It happened in the middle of the night, but when we awoke, we were suddenly told that the world had narrowly avoided a nuclear disaster several times worse than Chernobyl. Since then, we've been told of the number of refugees. It's reached one and a half million. And we've seen pictures of cities in complete ruin. Today, the IMF have been warning that the world may be heading for a global recession. Thousands of people plunged into poverty because of this war. And of course, we're not suffering at all compared to the Ukrainian people, but we are caught up in this growing sense of foreboding. Fear and anxiety are rising and we feel the darkness of evil spreading. I wonder how you dealt with all of this distressing information. The mental health charity Mind has advised people struggling this week to take breaks from the news and to to keep exercising, to eat well and above all, talk. Talk with your family and friends about how you're feeling about this. We've been encouraged also to do this with our children, to help reassure them and and give them some perspective. And all of that is brilliant advice, which we would do very well to follow. But I'd like to encourage us this evening to also turn to our faith. As Christians, we are to turn to God with our fears. And our reading today shows us why that would be helpful. By the time the disciples reached the Thursday of Holy Week, their sense of foreboding must have been off the charts. Recent events had all been difficult, the future looked bleak, it was becoming clearer and clearer that something very bad was about to happen. For weeks now, Jesus has been dropping hints about trouble ahead, suffering on the way. And as they had trudged the dusty roads into Jerusalem just a week previous, his dire predictions had become more and more explicit. Listen to these words from Mark 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. How do you deal with news like that? 
How do you begin to take in a prediction of suffering on that scale? Especially when it involves your closest friends. It must have set the disciples on edge. But then just like with our experience of the news this week, as the week then passed, things seemed to go from bad to worse. Normally going to Jerusalem for a festival was a week of excitement, something that the country folk all looked forward to. But there was very little joy in the last six days. The week began with conflict. The ruckus in the temple as Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers, offending and angering many. From there, day after day, there had been full-on debates with the religious elite as they tried to catch Jesus out and trip him up and trap him in his words. These weren't pleasant conversations they'd been having for the last few days. They were, they were full of argument and, and animosity. And then one evening in the middle of the week, the disciples had had their whole worldview turned upside down. They walked outside the city of an evening and, and, and these country folk, they've been marveling at the great size and grandeur of the temple. But Jesus turned around to them and said, in no uncertain terms, it was about to be destroyed. In fact, all of the major structures of the Jewish faith were soon to be reduced to rubble and the disciples would do well to escape the carnage while they still had the chance. How do you process a warning like that? We've never heard words like that, though the people in Ukraine have. But still this wasn't the end. Just the previous day before these events took place, another really ominous thing had happened. It, it was a bizarre incident, really. A woman had pushed her way into where Jesus and his disciples were enjoying time together, and she poured a jar of expensive perfume on his head. And the disciples had rebuked her for her madness. But Jesus didn't. He thanked her. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, She has prepared me for my burial. My burial. What? Despite all the warnings, the disciples still couldn't really comprehend losing their friend and master. Do you see, the longer the week had gone on, the more and more unsettled they were becoming. The signs were becoming more and more ominous. It was like the darkness was enshrouding them. Panic was rising. But there was still something else to be thrown into this potent mix. Something that would really shake the disciples to the core. In the coming moments, Jesus was about to announce a betrayal. More than that, a betrayal and a denial. One of the disciples was going to cause the downfall of Jesus. And Peter... One of the inner circle would deny he even knew his friends. Not just once, not just twice, but three times in one night. A complete disowning, a complete abandonment. And on hearing these words, the disciples would have been on the verge of panic. What on earth is going on? 
It was as if the ground was shaking beneath their feet. Everything they knew and how dear was being attacked and, and stripped away. And their heads must have been spinning. We can see that their faith was failing a little bit. The presence of evil was being felt. And the problem for us is that we know this story too well. And we find it very difficult to enter into how the disciples must have truly felt that Thursday night. But being no doubt, they were distressed. All of them, they were at their wits end. They needed real help to calm their racing hearts, just like we do today. And the wonderful thing is, Jesus knew. He knew exactly what was going on in their hearts and minds. And he set about supplying his friends with some of the help and the care that they craved. And he did it in the form of supper. Through a meal, he started to provide them with some of the assurance that they needed. Of course, the Passover, which was this, was them celebrating, reminded the Jews of how God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt all those years before. But by sharing this meal, Jesus was telling his disciples, God's about to rescue you again. But this time in, in ways beyond your imagining. And again, we know this story so well, but I want us to slow down and really think about it. Why was this supper just what the disciples needed? Well, I think it brought them three great reassurances. First of all, this supper reminded the disciples that God was in control. The future might have been completely unknown to the disciples. They might have been full of fear and worry, but Jesus knew what was coming and he remained in control of it. And we see this vividly in the way that the meal was arranged. On the first day of the Passover festival, the disciples asked Jesus, what are they to do to get the meal ready? But they seem to find out that Jesus is well ahead of them on this. Jesus instructs two of the disciples to go into the city to find the place that has already been prepared. And did you notice he gave them a, a very strange sign? They were to look for a man carrying a jar of water on his head. And you might think, well, so what? What's unusual about that? Well, it was unusual because in the ancient Near East, men did not carry water. It was the job of the women to go to the local well and draw the water. So when those two disciples were given this instruction to go into the city and look out for a man carrying water on his head, they must have thought that Jesus had gone a little bit crazy, a little bit mad. But what does the text tell us in verse 16? The disciples left. They went into the city and they found things just as Jesus had told them. 
Now, I don't think we're to assume that this man had been pre-warned by Jesus, that he'd spent that whole day walking around with a heavy jar of water on his head just so he was ready at the moment the disciples turned up. Remember, there were no watches to set at this time. What this sign is showing us is that Jesus had this miraculous foresight. He knows what is ahead, and most importantly of all, he is in control of it. And we see this again in what is said at the meal. At at the supper, he makes this chilling announcement that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And the other Gospels make it very clear that he knew precisely who it was. He dipped his bread into the bowl at the exact same moment that Judas did. And here we see again, Jesus knows exactly what is coming. He knows the horror that awaits in 24 hours time and he's not running from it. Indeed, in some mysterious way, he's in control of it. And Mark is trying to tell us that even the evil act of betrayal was not outside of God's plan. Though Judas did remain personally responsible for his actions. As the disciples ate that Passover meal, which reminded them of how God had so powerfully acted on their behalf in the past, they were to see that he was still doing something in the present. That even as the darkness drew near and, and even as the conspirators plotted, Jesus is entirely in control. And acutely conscious of the way that God's plans were going to work out. And we're to hear this same truth today. That even in the darkness of a time of war, even as evil masquerades as tanks and bombs, God remains in control. He knows how all things will take place. He's brought all those things into his calculations. And he will still ensure that his desired purposes come to be. So at this meal, the disciples would have been reassured by the evidence again of God's control. And so should we. The second thing about this supper that I think would have reassured the disciples in their time of distress was the making of a covenant. At the meal, Jesus used bread and wine to symbolize what was about to happen and he uses it to pre-warn his friends. His body's going to be broken. His blood is going to be shed. But he wants them to know that this is, this is no accident. This is no tragic act of fate. This terrible suffering was going to achieve something glorious. Through the shedding of his blood, a wonderful new covenant was going to be made between God and humanity. In the Old Testament, the blood of an animal was often shed at the making of a covenant. It was a dramatic sign of how important the promise was. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that when his blood is shed, a covenant would be made that would really benefit them and many, many more. 
And as they drank the wine in advance of it, and then later in remembrance of it, they were placing themselves within that covenant. When Jesus took the cup that night, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The covenant. I wonder if the disciples took in that night what covenant Jesus was talking about. In the Old Testament, this covenant was foreseen by the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the law, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. What, what an incredible promise. The creator, the sovereign God will be our God and we will be his people. We will know him intimately and personally. All of the evil and wickedness and sin in our lives will be forgiven and forgotten. And God will place his spirit in our hearts to lead us into right living. This is the covenant that's being made. This is what's going to be achieved in 24 hours time on the cross. This is God's plan. Now, I'm not sure the disciples would have taken all of that in at first. Because when we're at the level of fear and distress that they would have been, we don't naturally and logically put all the pieces together. But as they thought back on this meal, as we still do today, these words would have brought them great reassurance. There's something very special about the nature of a covenant. It's so much more secure than a contract. A contract breaks when we fail to uphold certain conditions. Think of your contract with BT or SSE. You fail to pay them, they cut you off. A covenant, however, is, is so much stronger than that. When God makes a covenant to his people, he is promising to hold on to us, come what may. He is promising to stay with us through thick and thin. He is promising to be kind and merciful even when we make mistakes. What was it he said to Jeremiah? I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. In the coming days that would be very good news indeed for Peter, wouldn't it? And yes, we have to take the step of putting our faith in Jesus and, and we mustn't walk completely away from him and harden our hearts like Judas did. But when we have put our trust in God, he will hold on to us with all his might. What a reassurance that is. In all of their distress, in all of their bewilderment, this news of the covenant must have brought some comfort to the disciples' racing hearts. And I hope that we can see that the same is true today. No matter what we see on our TV screens, no matter what horror our enemies unleash, God is not up to the left. 
He hasn't left the building. He's not going to desert us. He remains on our side. He is fighting for good. He will see us through this trial. That's what a covenant guarantees. And that leads us neatly to our final reassurance given to the disciples through this supper. At the meal, Jesus promises the consummation of God's kingdom. He promises that one day God's plans will be completed and this new eternal age of peace and blessing will begin. Listen again. Then he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus knows that in the coming days at the cross and the resurrection, he is going to defeat evil once and for all. He is going to defeat sin. He is going to defeat the devil. He is going to defeat death. He is going to defeat all the powers that stand against him. And he might not drink wine with his friends on this earth for a while, but one day he will. That is totally assured. There is nothing in the heavens or the earth, nothing that has been, nothing that will be, that can stop the purposes of God coming to be. Jesus assures his disciples in their hour of greatest need, the kingdom of God is coming. It may not come in the form that you're expecting. It may not come by the means you're expecting. It may not come as soon as you want it to, but it's on the way. Glory awaits for those who believe. And in these words, Jesus effectively says to his friends that I know the times are hard and sadly worse is still to come. But hold on. Because it will be worth it. By my power, all the things that you hope for will be consummated. The kingdom is coming and it will make up for all your present suffering. And again, this is something that I hope we can believe with all of our hearts today. In fact, we have even more reason to believe this than those disciples did. Because we know what happened after the supper. We know that resurrection did come after death. We have evidence that what Jesus is saying is true. So hear this today. God really is in control of the world. God really has made a covenant that he will never let go of. And God's kingdom really will be consummated. Nothing can stop it. And this is what those disciples discovered at that supper on the last day of Jesus' life. This is what they needed to hear as panic was setting in and the darkness was enshrouding them. And these are the same truths that we can hold on to in the events in Ukraine today. So if we find ourselves distressed by the news, do follow mine's advice. Do stop scrolling through the website for a while. Go and have a walk, talk. But above all, turn to your faith. Turn to God. 
through prayer and Bible study, we will find the resources that we need.